Lord, allow us this morning to, um, to marinate in this text in such a way that you would have your way with us. May we be humble. May we be teachable. Lord, may we see you in your majesty and beauty. And Lord, would you accomplish your will, Lord, through uh, the ministry of the word. And Lord, I ask as your messenger that I would simply reflect your truth, that you would, um, your, your, your truth would, would come through my lips and Lord, would impact your people for your glory. And Lord, those that may not know you, uh, Lord, would come to see afresh the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What the religious leadership in Israel don't seem to understand is that Jesus is an intellectual mind to be reckoned with. His intellectual and theological prowess has been on display in his teaching and even in the parable. But now the religious establishment seeks to trip up Jesus again with clever questions, and he proves to be much more than they can actually handle. Now, they have already come to him asking questions about divorce that happened in chapter 10. And then more recently in the context here, they came to him with questions about authority, and he pushed back on them and demonstrated to them that he does have authority to speak. And then they had some questions about paying taxes to Caesar, and he turns those around and throws it back at them. Every time they come to Jesus, he wins the argument, but not only that, and more importantly, he presses home the gospel truth and the sinfulness of their hearts. Now, you would think that they had had enough. You would think that their sinful, rebellious arrogance would, would just kind of like step back and turn to humility and recognize him for who he really is. But instead, they continue to send delegations to Jesus seeking to entrap him in his talk. They really are gluttons for punishment. And that's what we find as we come to this text. Because in this text, we, we have a resurrection riddle. You heard it as we read it. The next text, which we'll deal with next week, Jesus is challenged about the question about the greatest commandment. And at the end of the text, we find the, the, the humorous words. Look at Mark chapter 12 and verse 34, the latter part of the verse. It says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I mean, they were throwing all they could to, to trap him. And here Mark is saying, yep, how did that go for you? Well, Jesus revealed himself over and over and over again to be far more theological, far more intellectual, far more crisp and clear than any of these religious leadership. But we still are given the privilege to agonize with these puffed-up religious elite as they enter the fray. We're, we're given the privilege to, to stand back and marvel in amazement at our, at our incredible Lord and Savior. I don't know about you, but as I'm, as I'm you know, going through and studying through these interactions, I'm just like, wow, this is actually pretty incredible. This is not just dialogue. This is Jesus on display showing us his gift, 
Yes, because he is Messiah, but showing us also how he is using the word of God to prove his point. He is the son of God who has come preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But we can't leave it there. You see, we're we're not given this text simply to say, hey, hey, look at those religious elite who are so wrong and so far from the truth. Look, Look at how Jesus goes for the jugular and exposes their heart. Now, we're to be asking some questions of ourselves. Is what Jesus is exposing in this encounter with the Sadducees a reflection of what is in my heart? I mean, is is this what is going on with, with what I think and how I think? Is there something about this text that is confronting my thoughts, beliefs, my attitudes, and even my practices? And so this morning, as we come to this text, we see Jesus exposing and confronting the faulty views and superficial distortions in the hearts of the Sadducees about the resurrection and the eternal state in heaven. That's a mouthful. But I think it's important to grab a hold of all of this and say, and if that is what he's doing with the Sadducees, then certainly what he's doing is he's wanting then us to consider the same reality. So our proposition this morning is this. Jesus exposes and confronts our faulty views. You mean I have a faulty view? Possibly. Likely. Why? Because you live in a sin-cursed world. (laughs) You live in a context where there's all sorts of different ideas floating around. Or superficial distortions about the resurrection and our eternal state in heaven. And other things too, but in particular those. What is our view of the resurrection? What is our view of heaven? How do we come to those conclusions? Now, the structure of this text is very, very simple. I really only have two points. If you notice, there's three. The third one is actually the conclusion, okay? But there's two points. There's there's the riddle, and then there's the response, all right? The the, the Sadducees come, and they give a riddle, and then uh, Jesus comes with a response. So let's think about this resurrection riddle. Let's try and and place ourselves in the context of this story that the Sadducees are giving. But let's think a little bit about the the Sadducees. If you remember last week, we had the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together. If you remember, they were at opposite ends on many things. There's the conservatives and the liberals. Here we have uh, the Sadducees. Who are these Sadducees? Well, The Sadducees and the Pharisees were were two prominent Jewish religious factions in Israel in Jesus' day. But the Sadducees were considerably different than the Pharisees. Maybe if we put it into three categories. First of all, in, in a social standing category, the Sadducees typically were the wealthiest. And so they were they were quite um um, quite arrogant in their kind of the way their demeanor, and that would actually move us into the, their behavior. But they were they were from recognized families. They were the elite of the culture within Judaism. But they also had a certain kind of behavior. The Jewish historian Josephus describes them as boorish, obnoxious, and rude. Okay, not something you want to have on your tombstone. Just so you know. Okay. But this is what they're remembered for, how they carried themselves. But they had certain beliefs. They only believed 
in the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Torah, the book of Moses, or often considered to be the law. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in angels or demons. But their main distinction is that they did not believe in the resurrection. Now, obviously the joke is, that is why they are sad, you see, right? So you've probably heard that plenty of times before. It's a good way to kind of remember their distinction, okay? But it's interesting that Mark records for the reader this particular reality. I mean, it, you, you think about when, when Mark is recording the story, he's giving us information to give some clarity here. And what does he say? He says, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And what is their story all about? It's a question about what happens in the resurrection? I mean, so right from the start, as a reader, you're thinking, we got a problem here. They don't even believe in the resurrection, but now they're coming with a question about the resurrection. Now, Josephus adds that they did not believe that there was any life after death, and therefore there was no judgment, there were no rewards, there were no penalties. For them, the resurrection was not taught in the Torah and was to be considered a false doctrine. Now, this is who comes to, to, to confront Jesus with this question about this resurrection riddle. And it will end up being a resurrection confrontation. So, first of all, let's just consider then the scriptural background that they come with for this particular riddle. These rude and obnoxious Sadducees approach Jesus, the ignorant country bumpkin, because he's from Nazareth, and begin to ask Jesus a question. And what they're trying to do here is give a, a theological framework for this riddle. And what they're doing is they're, they're pulling from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6, which is where we have this concept of this leveret uh, marriage. And it says, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife... Uh, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they're, they're setting the stage, want to make sure that this, this, this concept is, is laid out before they actually tell the story. And, and this concept basically is, as it said here, is if, if you have a brother um, who's married and he doesn't have any, any, any children, in particular a male child, uh, and he dies, then as a, as a brother, as a family member, you have a responsibility then to marry that that, uh, that widow. And there's a purpose behind it. The purpose of this custom was to keep a family from dying out, and secondly, to keep the, the, the family wealth intact. Okay? So this is, this is what they're appealing to. And, and by the way, the story of Ruth is a story of this, this application. They come back to Bethlehem hoping that this, this custom, this, this, this practice would actually take place. All right? And ultimately, when, when there is an offspring from that, that new union, that child then will, will inherit all of that, the, 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 you know, the, the dying father's uh, wealth and responsibility and land. So that's the theological background. Secondly, then, let's just think about the content of this story. Uh, let's just read through it one more time here. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. 
and he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, at first glance, it becomes quite apparent that we're not really looking at real-life situation. Now, I, as a pastor, I, I have encountered real-life conundrums in the lives of people. Um, I've counseled a number of people who are in very dysfunctional family context. It's just part of, of what happens because we live in a, in a sin-cursed world. I've walked with people trying to sort through the misery of relationships and marriage and family. Um, I've seen the heartache and the tragedy that people must endure. Those are real-life struggles, and they're usually random, they're usually unpredictable, and they're usually messy and shocking. What we have here is not something random and unusual. This is, this is clearly something that's laid out. This is not something from reality. This is what is called uh, a reducto ad absurdum. It's the kind of argument that says a reduction to the absurd. It's a ridiculous question. It's not real. But it is a conundrum. It is a riddle. It is the kind of thing that an unbeliever would say to a believer. For example, you know, one of the questions that would come up would be, well, who did Cain marry? Right? As if that's going to bring the walls of Christianity crashing down. Right? They want to throw out a conundrum to try and twist you up and say, oh, no, no. You, know, it's right. you can think through the process and you can come to some conclusions there. Um, what we have here is a stock conundrum, a stock riddle that the Sadducees had used in their debates with the resurrection-believing Pharisees. You can imagine you know, two boys going to school and one's a, from the Sadducee family and one's from a you know, a Pharisee family and the, the Sadducee guy is saying, all right, let, I have a question to you about the resurrection. You know, what's going to happen? And here he goes through this, this story. And this is a stock story that there just doesn't seem to be any really good answer. So you can almost imagine some kind of meeting going on with the religious leadership. And if you remember, they've already approached Jesus about his authority. They sent the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus and asked him about the taxes. And now this is the new strategy. And they're saying, what should we do? What should we do? And one of the Pharisees say, says to the, the Sadducees, you know that question you're always bringing up that we just can't find an answer for? Why don't you, why don't you ask this, this upstart Jesus about this question? See what he has to say. He'll trip over this one for sure. And of course, the clock starts ticking, and everyone who knows Christ sits back and reads the story, and they're just waiting for it to unfold, aren't they? But little did they know who it was that they were really dealing with. This is no upstart revolutionary looking to make a name for himself by leading a quick uprising. This is no ignorant country bumpkin carpenter from Nazareth. No, Mark has been revealing who this person is throughout his gospel. And let me just highlight a few. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the master of the sea. He's the healer of the disease. He's the one who has authority over demons. He's the one who has authority in the temple. He is the very son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And that's just a few of them. And the reader's already seeing that. 
And now they're seeing this Jesus being approached with these, these ridiculous riddles. So we move then to this response then that Jesus has to this riddle. And let's just remind ourselves, the point of the riddle is to leave Jesus in this conundrum, in this place where, ah, I can't answer this, I don't know what the answer is. That's what they want from him. And so verse 23 fleshes that out. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? I mean, you got seven guys to choose from. I mean, is this like, you know, bachelor in heaven, so to speak, right? Which, which, which husband are you going to, or bachelorette, which husband are you going to choose in heaven? Now remember, since the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, this scenario is impossible and absurd to them. In their view, a woman and these brothers won't rise, and therefore it is a mute point. But they're in for a shock, and now... Jesus has the opportunity to respond, but his response isn't just a response. His response is going to be a confrontation. <laughs> Notice how he begins. Three words. You are wrong. <laughs> you are wrong. And there's a reason why you're wrong. What does he say? You don't know the scriptures and you have no understanding of what? The power of God. You don't know the scriptures and you have no understanding of the power of God. Let's just think through that a little bit. You don't know the scriptures. It's always interesting to me when I've had the opportunity of, of interacting with people. I am smelling smoke. Are you smelling smoke? Uh, maybe someone's just step out and just see what's going on, just, just for our own safety here, okay? Um, but um, it's always interesting to me that when I have the opportunity to talk to someone evangelistically or in, in, interact with um, someone who wants to seek you know, a discussion about the Bible, one of the questions that typically I would ans ask that is answered in the affirmative is this. Have you read the Bible? And, you know, so they would say, yes, I've read the Bible. And I would follow up and say, well, explain that a little bit. Have you really read the whole Bible? Not just bits and pieces, of, but have you actually read the whole Bible? Oh, yeah, I, I read the whole Bible. Because once, once they've said yes, they've, they've kind of jumped into something and they can't take it back now, right? Now, listen, I, I, I'm a real pastor. I understand the realities of life. My experience is that many who call themselves Christian have not read the Bible. <laughs> they would say, yes, I've read the Bible, but they haven't really actually read it from cover to cover, every little part. I mean, you know, have you actually made it through Leviticus, right? I mean, do you, or you just skip to the, to the good stuff, right? I mean, is that reality, okay? Um, and, and so I don't want to call them liars, but I think the reality is that what, what reveals the fact that they haven't read the Bible is what then comes out of their mouth when they try and express this is what the Bible is about. Because when they're coming up with some kind of a strange view, it's just like, if you read the Bible, you wouldn't come up with what you're saying. I mean, just a cursory read of the Bible, what you're saying is so far from the truth. Now, Jesus is confronting these Sadducees. And he's confronting them, and he's exposing something about them, and he's saying, you don't know the scriptures. Now, we have to be honest ourselves. We have to say, you know, I haven't read the Bible from cover to cover, 
but I am in process and I have still much to learn. Let me say this, and I want to be very careful here. It's okay if you haven't read the Bible from cover to cover. Keep reading. <laughs> all right? It's not a badge of honor. We don't have, all right, all, all the Bible readers stand over here. You guys are, oh, you've read it three times. Okay, well, you get to go further down here, all right? That's not the point. The point is that we're, we're not supposed to have a perfect understanding of the Bible, but we're supposed to all be in progress in our understanding of the Bible. And we want to encourage that. Right? So this is not a badge of, of honor necessarily. It's a means by which we are growing in our walk with God. So we must understand, though, friends, that there is no substitute for a growing understanding of this world and our relationship with Christ than the steady, ongoing habit of prayerfully and humbly reading God's word. Now, this is why, you know, early on in Sunday school, you hear, you know, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray. You guys remember that song, right? Um, you know, there's a reason why those, those, are, those are in these songs for kids. Why? Because we want the habit to be developed. Not because we simply want um, kind of some kind of a legalistic devotion to how many chapters and that, but because we want the Word of God to be in the life of a believer. Because that is the very place where God reveals himself and shows himself. So to hear from our Savior the words, you are wrong because you don't have any clue about what the Scripture says, is not what we want to hear. Right? That's not where we want to be. Now, not only that, it says here, you don't know the power of God. And one of the reasons the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection is because they denied the supernatural. They denied the supernatural. Uh, Acts chapter 23, verse 8. Just kind of in passing, we find this recorded for us. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. This is Acts 23, verse 8. So I'm, I'm not just coming up with this. It's right there in the text of Scripture. And we need to ask ourselves the same question. Do we believe in the supernatural? Now, certainly when we, we go to the Old Testament, we, we, we see supernatural activity of God on display there. He brings plagues in the, the people of Egypt. He divides the waters of the Red Sea so Israel can pass through in safety. He provides manna from heaven to, to provide the food for his people as they journey to Canaan. Samson kills thousands of Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. Um, God provides an overabundant supply of flour and oil for the widow who's providing hospitality for Elijah. Daniel has this incredible ability to interpret dreams. These are all supernatural activities that God is showing us in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament, um, we see it again. We've gone through it as we've gone through the gospel. Jesus turns the water into wine. He provides food for 5,000 people just from a fish and, and some bread. He heals the withered hand. He casts out demons. He, he heals the sick. He raises the dead. The resurrection itself is a supernatural activity. And then we move into the book of Acts, and we see how the church grows in supernatural ways. There's the gift of tongues that is given at the beginning of the church for the proclamation of the gospel. There's Ananias and Sapphira who were struck dead because they held back um, what they were supposed to be giving to the Lord. Eutychus, a young man who had fallen three stories from a window and died while listening to Paul preach, is brought back to life. By the way, that's never happened to me. I'm really thankful for that. It happened to Paul. 
No one's fallen dead on my watch, which I'm really, really thankful for, okay? It's a good thing. Um, prison doors are open, and Paul and Silas's shackles fall off. These are all supernatural activities. But today, we somehow don't think that God is quite as powerful as he used to be. In fact, I think we have a rather small view of God. Now, I want to be careful that you're not thinking something that I'm not trying to say. I am not saying that we, we need to see miraculous things all over the place. What I'm saying is, do we believe in supernatural activity that comes as a result of God being God in this world? And the answer, hopefully, is yes. Because we can be convinced that God doesn't do the supernatural anymore. We can live our lives in emptiness because we think that simply we're called to live kind of like a, out of a routine, out of a kind of a, a religious system of keeping the rules and performing ceremonies and that kind of stuff. But God, friends, hasn't changed. You might want to say the means by which he is carrying out his supernatural endeavors may have changed. But hear this, um, the supernatural activity of God is still going on. Let me just present to you um, maybe just five quick ways that that is true. The conviction of sin through the ministry of the word is a supernatural activity for an unbeliever and for a believer. That is God at work. You and I cannot create that. That is a divine, supernatural activity. Secondly, salvation, where one is brought out of darkness into light, is a supernatural event. It is all God. The ministry of illumination, whereby the, the Holy Spirit reveals himself from the pages of the word, gives understanding to those that are followers of Christ, that is a supernatural dynamic that is at work. God's providence, which is his, his working his will according to his plan in the affairs of man, is all a supernatural endeavor. Now, we don't see it with bells and whistles and all kinds of stuff going on, but it is a supernatural work. Answered prayer is a supernatural interaction with God. Again, you may not see things. I mean, you may not actually see someone's hand who was withered being restored, but you can pray that God will heal, and he does, if he so desires. And so we've got to be careful that we're not losing sight of the fact that, that he is a powerful supernatural God. So just kind of go back and just think through what Jesus says here. Is their problem? Is not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. May that not be said of us. And this again is the, is the window through which he's saying you have a problem and here's why. Now notice um, how, how he continues on because now he says I want to show you what's true and we're going to kind of work at it in backwards uh, not in chronological order. We're going to look at verses 26 and 27 and then we're going to look at verse 25. Now let's read verses 26 and 27 here and see what Jesus says about what the scriptures teach about the resurrection and the power of God. It says, and for, for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not 
uh, God of the dead, he, uh, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, just as an aside, there's something here that is very, very comforting to me, and it may be comforting to you. I want you to notice how Jesus speaks in, in, in kind of reflecting this truth to the Sadducees. He says, do you remember that passage about the bush? Now, friends, that makes me feel really, really good, especially when I'm trying to remember chapter and verse about something specific. Here, Jesus isn't quoting chapter and verse. He's just like, you remember that passage about, there's a bush, and you're like, oh, okay, thank you, Lord, for, for giving me comfort that, that I don't have to know exact chapter and verse, but I can remember kind of generally where it is, right? I just kind of, kind of love that fact. Now, I, I say that. But I also say, listen, it is good for you to know chapter and verse if you can learn chapter and verse. But sometimes, you know, that eludes you, right? And it's like, oh, I know it was somewhere that had something to do with, like, taxes and widows and where is that, you know? And you're like, okay, I'm landing somewhere close to it. Here's Jesus saying, you remember this, this story about the bush? All right, we press on. Notice first, Jesus is going to the Torah the book of Moses to prove his point. The very text that these Sadducees say, this is what we believe, but doesn't teach about <laughs> the resurrection, is the very text that he chooses then to show them the resurrection and why it is important. Okay. And it's Exodus 3 and verse 6 that is his proof. Now, here's, here's the logic of Jesus in this. He's saying, it is ridiculous for God to say that he is the God of men who have no existence. Now, I want you to think through this with me. Because God says, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm speaking to Moses. So I am. This is a reality. These guys have, have gone on. They've passed. They, they're, they're, they're dead. But I am their God. Okay? This is important to recognize. The resurrection, then, is a reality. In other words, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just cease to exist, then God cannot, at this moment, be their God. God is not the God of what has ceased to be. He is the God of the living, not the dead. So these who have died, they are alive. <laughs> All right? You with me there? This is his logic. But let's push it a little bit further. Who are these men that Jesus is bringing up? Are they not all men with whom God made a covenant? I mean, a specific covenant. And so when he, he speaks these words in Exodus 3.6 to Moses at the burning bush, he is speaking about a present reality in light of a past covenant. He's speaking about a present reality in light of a, last, a past covenant. I am the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not dead. They are Alive And friends, the same kind of language we find in the New Testament also, in particular, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 through verse, or chapter 11, verses 10 through 16. And let's just read this. For he, that's talking about Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age 
since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the uh, innumerable uh, descendants, sorry, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, and this is the punchline, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I mean, you, you don't believe in a promise that you're not going to receive. Jesus doesn't give a promise that he's not going to follow through with. So God doesn't say, if you believe in me, I will give you everlasting life. That ends at your death. Doesn't make any sense. It's not everlasting life then, it's temporary life, right? He says, instead, I will give you everlasting life. When you die, you will enter into my heaven as a full member of my family. You've been adopted into the family of God. You have the rights of full inheritance as an elder son. And when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be also, only to see that promise end in death, it just doesn't make any sense. No, the point is that we are presently, right now, citizens of his kingdom. But we have not realized all of our place as citizens yet. We're still waiting to be reunited with him in glory in heaven. So, what is true about the resurrection is taught throughout the scriptures. Now, we can choose to deny it. Um, we can reject it because it doesn't fit into our man-made idea of God and religion, but that doesn't change the fact that it's true. And see, the Sadducees had done that. They had said, we're only going to believe these five books, and we're only going to actually believe these things. And they already came to a conclusion, in a religious sense, that these, these books don't teach this. And Jesus is like, well, no, they do. <laughs> it's there, all right? That's the whole point here. So the problem is that they really didn't know the scriptures. And because they didn't take their knowledge of the scriptures seriously, they were defective in their understanding of the power of God. You see, it's, it's knowing the scriptures that opens the window then to understanding God's supernatural power and his activity that is going on. And friends, ultimately, we could be like the, the Sadducees if we're not careful. Now, that all has to do with um, the, the, the resurrection scriptures. Now I want you to notice the answer to the question in verse 25, the resurrection state. So there is a resurrection, but what will it be like in heaven? What will that eternal state be like? What will we be like in heaven? How will this... This um, imaginary widow and her seven husbands interact in heaven. So Jesus describes this exalted state of the resurrected as a state which transcends marriage and questions of multiple marriages. He says in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, neither, or they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, the contemporary Jewish belief um, 
in Jesus' day is that, that heaven was simply a continuation of relationships that you would have on earth. So you die, you go to heaven, but then you kind of are reunited with your family and you kind of, there's some kind of realm in which you continue on. Um, and so what the Sadducees were talking about, what was believed at the day, were actually this, this conundrum has some basis to the thinking of that day. Now the question of the Sadducees, as I said, did reflect those cultural assumptions. But what Jesus says here is that their view of heaven is distorted. In heaven, there's no marriage at all. The heavenly state is an entirely new dimension. And I, I just want you to, to follow along as, as I read 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 40 through 44. And just think about what the Apostle Paul says here about what, what our, our heavenly body is going to be like. He says, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earth is of another. There is one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, there's another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star in glory. So he's speaking about as you look and the beauty that is in heaven, the beauty that is in earth. So, as it, so, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So there's some things there he just says, this is, this is what it's like to actually have this imperishable body. There's something unique then about our, our, our bodies, about our being, and about our relationships in heaven. And when it comes to marriage and the family and our relationships, we need to be careful not to say more than what scriptures say. About 400 years ago, there was a well-known preacher, Welsh reformer by the name of John Penry, and he sat in the Tower of London awaiting his execution. It all happened really, really fast. Um, and there's a whole kind of story behind it because he was saying he basically wanted to take the, the gospel to the Welsh people in their language and the church at that point in time did not want to it be promoted in, in others translated into that language. And he left four girls. These were his daughter's names. Deliverance, comfort, safety, and sure hope. If you're just thinking about names for your children, um, there are some rooted biblical names, all right? He must have been reading Bunyan or something like that, you know. Um, and he left each of them a Bible, and he wrote a letter uh, to them and also to his wife. And this is how he signs the letter in anticipation of his death. He says, from her husband for a season and her eternal brother. Now, I just want you to think about that statement. He is saying to his wife, whom he loves... I've been your husband for a season, but I will be your brother for eternity. There's something different about our relationships in heaven that doesn't translate to say, well, I was your husband on earth, I'll be your husband in heaven. You say, no, no, I'll be your brother in Christ in heaven. And friends, for some of us, that, that kind of like, there's a part of us that goes, no, I'm not sure about that. 
Because we, we're like, ah, does that, that seems somewhat like, oh, you, you don't care about your wife? You know, you know, no. It's because he has a biblically formed understanding of the difference between life on earth and life in heaven. Now, what this is teaching us, friends, is that when I die and go to heaven, I won't be a grandson, a father, a husband, an uncle, a cousin, or a son-in-law forever. A woman won't be someone's second, third, sixth, or seventh wife forever from this illustration. No, when we enter into glory, we will all be brothers and sisters in Christ, communing together uh, with Christ um, as the center of our focus. And that is what Jesus is saying here, that our identity will not be marked by our earthly family relationships, but by the fact that we are all part of the family of God. And again, there's a part of us that kind of cringes there because it seems like, well, doesn't God care about our earthly families? Now friends, for many of us, this is just a, this is a sentimental struggle. It is. And if we would have a, a biblical understanding of this and we would allow scripture to feed us, we would have a healthier approach to these things. Our culture wants us to think that when we get to heaven, we will in some way or another pick up our earthly relationships. You know, I can't wait till when I get to heaven because I'm gonna be able to sit down with, with mom and I'm gonna talk with her and all that kind of stuff. Can I just be frank? If you're a believer, you're really not gonna care so much about mom. Now, I'm not saying you're not gonna care about mom. My, my point is, she is going to be your sister in the family of God because Christ is gonna be central. We'll get to that in just a minute. Now, there are lots of questions about heaven that scripture just doesn't answer. Let me throw some out at you. To what degree will those who have gone before us know us and be known by us when we get to heaven? I may have some ideas, um, but scripture isn't clear. What will our bodies be like? Well, we've read what Paul says. Will they be a representation of our peak physical health in our mid-20s, or will they be more mature? And what if I never peaked? All right? Um, what's it going to be like? You know, which, which, which reflection is going to be there? Um, what about children, infants, the unborn? Now, friends, this is, this is hard because if, if you're, you know, if you're a, a couple and, and you've had a miscarriage and, and, and life has begun and you're saying this, this is God's child, you might even in your mind have a name for that child. No one else knows about it. And you think about that child. And you're saying, you know, when I get to heaven, I will be reunited with that child. And I'm not saying that that won't happen. What I'm saying, however, is that the nature of that will maybe not be what you think it's going to be. What about those who die in a fire or are drowned in the sea? There's all sorts of things about how God brings people back together um, by virtue of his divine wisdom. Now, friends, these are all great questions that I have no business answering from the pulpit as scriptures are by and large silent on these issues. And so I, I don't want to put postulate things there for us that um, really... Um, Scripture is silent on. But we must guard against sentimentality that wants what Scripture never promises. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble. All dogs don't go to heaven. <laughs> Cats do. <laughs> it talks about, you know, the, the lion and the lamb and that kind of, no mention of dogs, sorry. 
Um, so well, you can be there with Kitty. It's okay. All right? No, the, the, these, are, these animals are they're, they're wonderful. We, we build attachments to them, but they are God's gift for us while we're here. All right? And, and so we've got to be careful that we're beginning to see things from a biblical perspective. Um, your, your dog, your cat will not rise from the dead. Now, um, over this past week, there's been some really sad news. You've probably heard about it, the little boy in England who was in this wrestling match, um, the parents were at least, with the, 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 the legal um, system in England because he has this, had this brain uh, disease and the doctors basically looked at him and said, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be you know, too much work or it's not going to be worth spending the time to try and correct his, you know, to do operations and stuff like that. And so they denied him any health care that would be corrective. Um, and they were appealing that in the courts. And of course, this week, um, little Alfie Evans passed away. It's a heartbreaking story all, all the way around, but there's something that came out of the story that I think speaks to what we're talking about here, and I, I do not mean to make light of this or to, to somehow uh, to, to want to kind of nitpick or, or correct them, but I think there's something that comes out in some of the statements of mom and dad at his passing that are helpful for us to understand and to see the cultural, uh, superficial um, reasoning that takes place Listen to what his father, Tom Evans, posts, posted on Facebook. He says, my gladiator lay down his shield and gained his wings at 2.30. Absolutely heartbroken. I love you, my guy. And I'm totally with him as far as the heartbreak and that kind of stuff. Mom posted a little bit later, our baby grew his wings tonight at 2.30, and we're all heartbroken. Thank you, everyone, for all your support. Now again, I want to be careful, I want to be sensitive, I don't want to belittle or somehow be nitpicky here, but, but there is there's a cultural comfort expressed in those words that is simply contrary to the teaching of Scripture. Okay? And, and here's what it is. Um, and both of them said, Alfie gained his wings, he grew his wings. There is this cultural, you know, this, this kind of... Um, sentimentality that, that wants to attribute to a, a child who has died that they are now becoming an angel. You will not find that in Scripture. Right? You, you won't. But it, it sure sounds good, right? Now, they're grieving, they're saying things, we say things in our heart to express our, our things. My point here is to say there is a belief system, though, that would allow someone to think that this is a possibility. Your child, when your child died, did not grow rings. And, and, and here's the problem. When we embrace that sentimental kind of comfort, it eventually is a comfort that falls short. What we should be saying are things like this. Little Alfie is now in the presence of Christ. Right? Or Alfie is with the holy, trustworthy, glorious, good God of the universe. He's with the one that created him. In other words, it is God who is the one who knows what is best. But we want to somehow think, oh, he's now an angel fluttering around. and No, no, no. He's in the presence of Christ. Then the question is, do we recognize that being in heaven with Christ is a beautiful, wonderful reality? Or are we kind of caught up with the secular thinking, even superficial spiritual thinking that being an angel is what it's all about? 
Now we serve a good God. He orchestrates the world and everything in it. He truly knows what is best. So find your comfort in him. Now did you notice what Jesus says here in this text? He says, when we get to heaven, we don't become angels. What does he say? It says you'll be like angels. Now, that's a like. In other words, there's something about angels that will be similar to you. So angels are, are not former saints that God sends to earth to shadow God's children on the earth. It makes for a good movie, but it's not true. And unfortunately, it, it sometimes makes for a good Christian movie, but it's not true. We will be like angels in some sense. What that could mean is that we'll be sexless, or that we'll be only concerned with serving the Lord. I think that the, the purpose here, though, is to, is to understand that there is a, there's a dynamic that is unique to our existence in heaven that is so removed from our existence on the earth. We will be like angels in the sense that we will have a completely different dynamic and dimension and, and understanding and experience. Now, to be sure, it will be something that will bring us great joy. To be sure, it will be an existence that is far better than anything that you and I can imagine. It will be a reality that doesn't make us feel that we have missed out or that something is lacking. In other words, I don't think you're going to get to heaven and when you get there and you're going to say, he's not letting me see my mom. Jesus, that's not, no. It, it, it'll all balance together. Somehow God's going to bring all that together and your mom will be there, your dad will be there, but Jesus is going to be the one who's going to be the most important person there. Okay, So just bring all that together. You're not going to be slighted in any way, shape, or form. Let me just give you a few things. This is not an exhaustive list, but I, th I thought it would be good just to kind of remind ourselves of this. A few things that I can assure you of heaven. What is true about heaven? Number one, if you're a child of God, you will be welcomed into heaven. If you're a child of God, you'll be welcomed into heaven. Now, that seems somewhat obvious, but not because you deserve heaven, but because of God's grace. In other words, people who have lived sinful lives will enter into heaven because they have been the recipients of the effectual call of God's grace. All right? Secondly, you will receive glorified bodies. I'm thankful for that. It'll be a greater body than I have right now. Um, I will change my membership from 24-hour fitness to eternal fitness. It'd be great because I won't have to work out anymore or at all. Um, number three, heaven is a beautiful place. Everything about it is wonder, beauty, amazement. Now, it isn't all floating on clouds and playing harps, unless you're Trudy, and Trudy plays a harp, and in heaven, she will be able to, have you ever tried to play in a floating cloud? That'd be kind of hard with a harp. I mean, they're, 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 they're big instruments, right? Um, no, it's, there's something about, there will be responsibility, there'll be roles, there'll be function, there'll be activity going on in heaven. We're not given the full picture of that. But to be sure, there's gonna be order, function, there's gonna be a dynamic that is, that is something that we will enjoy, that we'll participate in. It will be a beautiful place. But here's the emphasis, though. The central focus of heaven will not be your loved ones, but the one who has loved you, Jesus Christ himself. He is front and central. 
He is the focus. He is the one that we will be delighted to see. One of my heroes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, was often asked why we are not told more in the New Testament about the life beyond the grave. And he gave two responses. I just, I'm going to read these because I think this is really, really well said, and I think it's helpful for us. Because I have two answers to give. The first is this, and I'm sure that it is right. We are not told more because there is a sense in which we cannot be told more. Everything in this world is sinful, even our language. I do not hesitate to assert, therefore, that if the New Testament had given us a detailed description of heaven and of being with Christ, our language would misrepresent it. Our language is not pure enough. The thing is so wonderful that all the vocabularies of the universe are not adequate to describe it. It is so glorious and wonderful that we need to be qualified and perfected before we can take the description of our capable uh, or, or, or are capable of understanding it. I am sure that this is the first answer. The other answer is that what that we are deliberately not told in order that we may think of it only as Paul thought of it. Paul only put it on, uh, put it one way. The one reason for wanting to go to heaven is that I may be with Christ, that I may see him. That is what the little word and, or why the little word and is so important. To me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only man who is really happy about death, the only one who can say confidently to die is gain, is the man who has said to me to live is Christ. That is what enabled Paul to say it. Christ was the consummate passion for his life. To know him, to dwell with him, that is the thing, said Paul. That is my life, and therefore to die must be gain. To go home, to be with Christ is very far better. So what is heaven? You can just say two words. It is Christ, it is gain. And there's, there's a lot packed up in that. Now, bringing things to a close, a resurrection challenge. Number one, we must be students of the word. This one should reflect on this. Doesn't it, doesn't it flow out of this text? We must be students of the word. We cannot come with, up with our own ideas about the word of God like the, the Sadducees say, well, we're only going to believe in the first five books of the Bible. Every once in a while, there'll be those who, who rise up in Christian culture with unique twists and emphases on aspects of the word of God. Some might say, we're New Testament Christians. And yes, I can understand that we're New Testament Christians, but emphasizing here, the, the priority should be spending our time in the New Testament because the Old Testament, that's just, that's, that's, that, that's that kind of like, you know, that, that wicked, that, that kind of nasty God, but we want the God of the New Testament. You understand, there's that kind of dynamic. It's like, well, the New Testament is what is important here. But when that is embraced, it betrays then even what Jesus Christ said and modeled for us when he interacted with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Because what does Jesus do with those disciples? As they're journeying back on the way, Jesus goes through Moses, the law, the Psalms, the prophets, and what does he do? He is pointing exactly where he is in the Old Testament. It's full of Christ. Okay, So we can't just say, well, we're just New Testament Christians. Another one that's come up recently um, well, the past 20 years or so, is that you know, we are red-letter Christians. 
You know, we focus on the red letters. Those are the, those are the primary. We want to listen to Jesus, what he has to say. Paul, he's evil. He hates women. We're going to focus on the red letters. And what you end up having then is an undermining of the whole doctrine of inspiration, making one section more inspired than the other, which is not inspiration at all. That is actually a false teaching, and um, it will lead you to a lot of, a lot of false conclusions. So, and the reality, friends, is this. Who, who are we to pick and choose the portions of Scripture that we're going to believe in or that we will say are relevant? You know, doing my dissertation, um, I was interviewing a lot of pastors, and I, there's one pastor I interviewed, Asking the question about, you know, how do you, how do you determine what to preach and, you know, what, what's important for you? And he, he, said, he said, Rod, not, not every portion of the scripture is relevant today. And um, this was last summer. Um, and uh, I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. He says, you know, take Nehemiah, for example. He says, that's got nothing to say for us today. And I kind of sat there and hummed and hawed and tried to be as gracious as I could. I said, well, well it's interesting because you know, our church, we're going through Nehemiah right now. Um, so, um, but if, you, if you're saying that there's parts of Scripture that aren't relevant, then what are you saying? It's not sufficient. You're not going to preach the whole counsel of God. There's parts that are and parts that aren't. That's, that's undermining the whole concept of uh, of the doctrine of the inspiration script, that God breathed it out for our benefit, right? Secondly, we must be good students of the word. Secondly, we must embrace a big, all-powerful God. You and I serve a God who is all-powerful. He is totally holy, separate in, in, in magnificence, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't interact with us. God's holiness is not tainted by our sinfulness. God's holiness comes in and psh, sheds light on our sinfulness. All right? Someone has said, God, you know, God, is, it's, like, it's like putting a glove on when you go into the garden and you start working and you're working with mud. God's holiness is like that glove. The glove doesn't get muddy. The mud gets glovey. God's holiness is imparted to us. Our sinfulness is not imparted to him. You understand that? We serve an incredible, big, all-powerful God. So hear this. When you pray, when you're facing a difficult decision, do you pray believing? Do you place your troubles in God's hands, believing that he will actually be working on your behalf uh, according to his will? Do you take time to read and listen to or place yourself under the word, believing that God is, is at work through that ministry of the word to conform you to the image of his son, that this supernatural dynamic is ongoing in your life simply because you're placing yourself in the channels of his grace, in particular under the preaching of the word? Do you believe that God changes the hearts of kings and rulers and principals and teachers and bosses and coworkers and spouses and children in ways that you cannot? Do you believe in an all-powerful God? Maybe our biggest battle is the battle of unbelief. That God just doesn't do powerful things anymore. Number three, we must be honest about and alert to 
the cultural sentimentality that is all around us. It permeates even our Christian worldviews. It distorts the teaching of God's word and points us to deal with issues in ways that are not rooted in the word, in the gospel, or with Christ at the center. Friends, these distortions and the influences of sentimentality will tear away at the satisfaction that God gives us through his word, through his gospel, and in Christ alone. So question, how has the culture shaped your understanding of the nature of the resurrection and of your life in heaven? How has the the culture influenced how you parent or how you relate to your spouse or even how you practice your Christianity? Is it what the word of God says or is it what the Christian culture says? Or is it even the culture outside the Christian culture that is speaking into the Christian culture that then gets to you? All right? And somehow now you've embraced, for example, the psychology of the world to understand your sinful problem. And so you're no longer seeing your sinful problem as a sinful problem. You're seeing it as a psychological problem when God says, this is a sinful problem. This is all the world's ways of dealing with things. So... We must hold firmly to what scripture says and loosely what our sentimental hearts wish for. And finally, here's the last thing. We must long for heaven because that is where Christ is. Now, someone who is not a follower of Christ doesn't understand that. (laughs) They're like, what? Samuel Rutherford, preacher from years ago, compares our experience in heaven with a bride's delight on her wedding day. What, 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 sh- what delights a bride the most? Is it the guests? Look how many guests there are. Is it the flowers? Is it the beautiful dress that she has on? Is it the, the, the reception that, that happens afterwards, all those things are important. But the thing that should delight her is the joy on the face of her husband-to-be as she walks down that aisle to receive her. And friends, there's something about that that is helpful for us. Here's what Rutherford says. The bride takes not by a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she does in her bridegroom. So we in the life to come shall not be so much accepted with the glory that goes about us as with our bridegroom's joyful face and presence. That's why I say, you know what? There may be some kind of an awareness of your friends and your family when you get to heaven, but you're going to be more concerned about seeing the beauty of the face of Christ. That is what you're longing for. That is what you want to see. These Sadducees had no idea that Jesus was going to confront them. And friends, you probably had no idea that God's word was going to push you in some of the ways it has today. Where do you stand with him? Let us draw now to a close and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Our time has has gone. There's more things, Lord, that we could
think through as it relates to this text. But Lord, may we come away with the reality that in heaven you are seated on your throne and you look for and you long for the coming home of those whom you have called to be a part of your family. You can't wait for us to be there except for the fact that you have a plan to accomplish through us. So Lord, help us to be faithful, to live our lives here with the motivation, not just that flows out of the gospel that we have been the recipients of, but the motivation that comes with the anticipation of heaven that we long for and being present with you. And Lord, this morning, may we have seen you afresh not just as a theologically precise God, but one who truly loves us and cares about us and wants us to know the truth so that we can live our lives with an awareness of that reality rather than in the, the fuzziness or the darkness of superficial Christianity or the superficial world in which we live. Now, Lord, as we move on today, let us celebrate this Lord's table and be reminded of the the glorious reality of the fact that you shed your blood for us and you died on the cross in our place. We are humble before you. We don't deserve the grace that you give, but we receive it joyfully. And we remember it afresh again today in your name. Amen.